world. This is ZachCast podcast for local government nerds. I'm Chad. That's Patrick. And today we're talking about what? Well, we're talking about House Bill 4072. So this is a uh, House bill in the Texas legislature having to do with changes to sales tax law. So Patrick, give us a summary. Uh, there was a, a somewhat similar but different bill that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And so like, how does this differ? What is it? What does it cover? What does it do? How dramatic is it? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then we'll kind of talk about it from a, a more nerdery standpoint, just to fulfill the, my, my quota. Your, your quota for nerdness. So, so yeah, House Bill 4072 is a, a, a bill by Morgan Meyer. Um, Representative Meyer has basically put this bill forward that uh, it changes the way sales tax uh, is, is consummated. So uh, the, the big difference is, is right now we have what, what are called a, a, a point of, of business definition that defines how sales tax is charged in the state. And Morgan Meyer has this bill that really wants to say that sales tax is going to be charged wherever the product is delivered, regardless of whether the place is a, the business is a place of business or not. Yeah. So, or I guess not just where it's delivered, which like basically where the possession changes hands. That's correct. Where the of possession a, changes of a good hands. or service. Yeah. So I, I like to use uh, a Domino's pizza as an example right now. So in today's current law, Domino's pizza is a place of business because they allow customers to come in and pick up the pizza. So even though somebody in another city may order a pizza for delivery, the sales tax still goes to the point of where Domino's is located, right? Under Morgan Myers bill, every time Domino's delivers a pizza, the sales tax for that pizza is going to go to the point of delivery. It's going to go to the city that it gets delivered into. That sounds utopian. And Chad, I'll probably debate this a little bit. Uh, it sounds a little utopian, like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But when you actually start thinking about how difficult that could be on businesses, it, it could be quite difficult. The other bill that was filed, uh, I don't even know, remember the number. We did a podcast on this before. But there was another bill filed more on the city perspective, which basically came in and, and increased the definition for uh, what a place of business was, right? Because the comptroller is changing the rules on place of business. Those go into effect October 1st. And that bill would have effectively said that a place of business is somewhere where somebody could respond to an email or could respond to quotes and things, you know, do orders by phone and some other things to clarify what the comptroller's rule change was going to be. We don't see that bill passing. So we really aren't talking about that bill. Um, but 4072 interestingly enough, also has Dustin Burroughs, who is, it's important to note, he's the chair of the calendars committee in the house. So he basically controls where things go and how they go and when they hit the floor, um, is a co-author on this bill, which obviously gives it a little bit of um, gasoline to get over the hill, I guess. And so that's why we're talking about it. That's why we're having a conversation. Okay. So as it stands right now, the process of figuring out where sales tax is due is very complicated. So we're not going to get into all of the details. We've talked about it on podcasts before when the controller's rules came out. But if you have a brick and mortar store, that's typically where sales tax is consummated, whether it, whether it is uh, picked up by someone shopping there or whether it is delivered from that location. If you do not have a physical presence uh, where an item is being fulfilled, then it is typically... Uh, at the location of the destination, right? Whether where it's delivered, um, if the shipping location, the distribution center is located at a place of business, then that is where sales tax is consummated currently, right? So there, there's like there's lots of different uh, the, like the flow chart of trying to figure out where sales tax is owed is complicated. So the comptroller, what like last year, they mm -hmm. released a proposed rule change that would have it would have changed a lot of this stuff. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that we now have online sales tax. So we have online sales tax. We have marketplace sales tax for things like Amazon's third-party sales, for Etsy, uh, for places that provide a platform for sales. Those platforms are now responsible for collecting sales tax and remitting it to the place where the item is delivered. So the comptroller's rules seemed largely about trying to make the entire consummation process a bit more cohesive or coherent. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now there was also some stuff in there that seemed, it seemed like they were trying to clean up what they considered to be a loophole in, in some of the sales tax law with regard to uh, incentives and, and, and creating quote places of business for the purpose of collecting sales tax. Correct. And to be right. clear, a loophole that they actually allowed and created. Yes, that so they let's, that let's, they basically approved and said, yes, this is how the law is currently written. And yeah, the gave taxation gave taxation letters to these cities to say that yes, you could do it this way. I mean, there were official like written letters to cities that allowed them to do it. Yeah. So the comptroller's rules came out last year. They were delayed for a variety of reasons, partly because of pushback, partly because of COVID. Um, but now that we have a legislative session, we've had a couple of bills introduced to either um, amend what the comptroller was doing or just supersede it altogether. This one, the reason that we're talking about it, in addition to the fact that who's co-sponsoring it, is because it is pretty sweeping, would you say? Correct. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a wholesale change to how we currently account for sales tax. Okay, so let's talk about conceptually what this does, because conceptually, like in a vacuum, I don't necessarily hate it. Because it does make it easier to say this is where sales taxes do. Okay. Correct. So Correct. there's there's other aspects like what what you know if this thing this section or this component is easier now then some other component is probably going to be more difficult right or like if this is a pro then there's going to be a con. So some of the cons are some cities are going to lose a lot of sales tax under right. this model. Correct. Because this essentially removes. I think even more broadly uh, than what the comptroller was trying to do last it year. Swing, it swings the pendulum significantly further than yes. the October 1st rule change will. Yeah. So it, this is this is much more sweeping than what the comptroller was trying to do because the comptroller still gave you the ability uh, if you had a place of business and you delivered from that place of business, then that was where sales tax was consummated. What they were trying to do is say, you actually have to have a place of business. You can't just have like three people you know, fulfilling online orders and no other infrastructure in place Correct. just so that you can collect sales tax there. This is this is basically saying that none of that even matters. If if you don't pick up the item at that location as the consumer, then that sales tax is due where you pick it up. Period. Oh, correct. Yeah. Yes. Where it's delivered. Or yeah. where the service is performed. Correct. So uh, for example, uh, let's say you have an HEB grocery store in your community. And there's grocery delivery that occurs for HEB and it's HEB employees doing that grocery delivery. In today's world, that sales tax would go to the store. Under this bill, that sales tax would go to wherever it's delivered. Right. Right. Um, And I I think there's a valid argument from the city that has that HEB store that the cost to fulfill that order and to provide the services that are necessary for that HEB to be there are a burden of the city that the HEB sits inside of. That's, That's the argument that I would have. That's there. The other, the second thing I, I want to comment on is not to be totally chicken little. Uh, you know, it's chicken little as in the sky is falling, right? But I'm not necessarily convinced that if this rule change occurs, everybody's going to lose millions and millions of dollars, right? You made this point yesterday, and so I, I don't want to make the point and not give you credit for it. But the fact is, is we're still charging the same amount of sales tax statewide. The money's going to go somewhere. It's just shifting around. And the reality is, is that some of these cities are going to benefit from this rule as well. So yes, we know, and we can look at it and we can say, okay, there's going to be a huge loss here of revenue. But what we don't know, the uncertainty, and really what makes everybody nervous, the uncertainty is, is we don't know what people are going to get back, what the net impact is going to be at the end of the day. Um, and that's just really dangerous to do. I, I'm just going to be honest. What scares me about this bill is not that it like changes this to like a more utopian, easier to understand method. It's that it's such a wholesale change. We don't know how broke cities are going to go. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that that's the that's the hard thing is is how do you plan for this? And yeah, in a city's case, you're going to worst case scenario. Yeah, and and the fiscal notes are going to say that there's no overall impact, right? Because the number, the total amount of sales tax should be more or less the same. It's just being allocated to cities differently. Well, and TML hasn't done their job. I've said this year after year after year. This the fiscal notes that are attached to bills show no implication to local governments, 
right? It's only about state government. So a fiscal, a clean fiscal note just means it doesn't impact a state. Of course it doesn't impact a state. They get sales tax all over the state. Yeah. But it's going to have significant impacts on cities. There's no local analysis on what those those impacts are going to be at the city level. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Patrick, can you do me a favor? Can you can you drag over your three legged stool for me? Yeah. Here, here, let me drive that stool for you. Thank you. This is where I insert the uh, audio <laughs> sound effects <laughs> later. Okay. So we got our three legged stool of tax administration. So let's let's talk about this bill then. So for those unfamiliar. With uh, with Dr. Bob Bland's three legged stool of tax administration, you, you look nerd at, alert, nerd <laughs> alert. You look at uh, the administration, the equity, and the efficiency of a tax law, right? Tax policy. Yeah. Those things are all going to have to balance in some way for that stool to to f- like stay upright. Um, so you know, as you as you increase efficiency, you may decrease equity. Right? Are you if you if you increase the administrative overhead, uh, then you're going to be reducing the efficiency, most likely. So, in this case, what we're sacrificing or what we're changing is uh, we are we are increasing the efficiency because the question of uh, sales tax is much clearer. Right? So uh-huh. you don't have the option to create these incentive agreements that are basically hoarding sales tax, right? So, so the actual placement of the sales tax is much more efficient to the local governments because it's, it's more clear. The administrative burden is largely reduced too, I would say. Um, now, when it comes to auditing, that may be a Nightmare. different story. Nightmare. Right? Because you're going to have to actually, the comptroller will have to dig into essentially every transaction Correct. For and I have, an, up, I have an update there as well. By the way, we'll get into that here in a little bit. Okay, uh, but I I do think that if you ignore the short term impact, and if you say that this is the way that sales tax had always been collected, I think that there's a reasonable argument on equity. I know what you just said is fair, but uh, as far as like HEB delivering outside of a city limits and largely the burden of that uh, that store falls on that specific city, right? Not just mm-hmm. not just the infrastructure, but also the traffic that people bring to the city. Except, I will say though that for that scenario, people coming to the store, driving through your roads, adding congestion to your streets. If they're coming to your store to do that, then you're getting the sales tax, right? It's Correct. only in the instance where they're where it's leaving your city limits. Yeah, but the ability to maintain the infrastructure to that store so that it can run, the ability for the employees to work out of that store, all those things happen in the jurisdiction to which the store is located. True. So now when you couple the fact that you have you have property taxes in most cities, mm-hmm. uh, you have- not all, not all cities. You have sales tax. <laughs> Correct. They're also paying utility customers, right? So like that's not an issue. You're really talking about a fraction of the revenue that these businesses generate for localities. Now, in a scenario like a, like a Domino's or a Pizza Hut, where especially Domino's, where a majority of their sales are delivery, then yeah, you could significantly reduce the amount that goes to the specific city. Like in Hudson Oaks, you know, if there was a delivery pizza place, the service area is going to be much wider than the city, which is a relatively small city, right? It's like two and a half square miles. So, I mean, they may lose 50% of that revenue, but at the end of the day, that's not, they're not a huge taxpayer, right? The, the larger taxpayers are going to have a larger percentage of their sales take place inside the store. And you're still going to have curbside pickup. All that stuff is still going to be taxable on premise because it's the, the goods are changing hands, changing possession at the store. Correct. So that's not as much of an issue, but I, I just think in a vacuum, if you were to look at, if we had always been doing it this way, I don't think we would consider it too unfair. Except the three-legged stool also includes, you know, basically the administration of the tax itself, right? And well, and the yeah, is- so, so the administration falls not on not only on the 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 governmental entities, but there's also an administrative side on the taxpayer themselves. Correct. Okay, so let's talk about the administrative impact on 
businesses? Because I think that aside from the impact, the immediate impact and uncertainty on actual revenue allocations, which is significant. Correct. There's there will be a, a larger administrative burden on the businesses to actually remit taxes correctly. Correct. There will be. And I think it's important for everybody to understand that you have businesses and and you know they're uh, they're administering this tax. They are then sending that tax and the documentation to a city or to the comptroller in Texas. And you have a process at which you then audit that taxpayer if you need to, right? My concern in all of this is, is one, the onus that we're putting on the taxpayer. And, and you and I talked about this a little bit yesterday. Okay. So, so let's, let's, when you say the taxpayer, you're not talking about the, the consumer who's actually paying the sales taxes. You're talking no, about talking the business about the that's business. remitting the taxes that's on behalf correct. of the consumers. Okay. That's correct. And obviously the consumer is actually the one paying the tax. Yes. But ultimately the taxpayer to the state is the business. Yes. And so- Problem number one is, is for small mom and pop businesses, this could become very difficult, uh, right? If they deliver or they have any type of method, uh, like I have a friend of mine that owns a catering business and he does meal delivery to people's homes four or five times a week, right? That's, that's what he does. He used to own a restaurant. Now he is going to have to fill out a sales tax report for every meal he delivers in every different jurisdiction that he delivers that meal in, Right. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had to do that because he has more than three pickup orders a month that occur at his home, which is where he generates most of his his sales tax. So you're going to make him sit down for hours to go through and do these reports because he's not big enough to really justify a, a, a payment processing or POS system to do this for him. And I know you're going to come back. I'm already going to make the argument for you that you know, out there you have technology, you have like Square that a lot of restaurants use and uh, different retailers use and Square automatically does all those reports and things for you. And, and I don't disagree with that, but ultimately not everybody's doing that and the administration could become very difficult. The second side of this is, and, and what we know is taxpayers don't really care whether they pay the right jurisdiction or not. They don't get penalized for it. So as long as they collect the 8.25%, they don't necessarily care if they sent the money to the right location or not. And that's what we see all the time in like lawn maintenance companies, landscaping companies, right? Landscaping companies should be charging sales tax at every location they're doing landscaping. But we all know that's not how it works. They have a home base and all the sales tax ends up going to the home base. And the comptroller doesn't screw with it. They don't mess with it because it's just so difficult to administer on their end or to audit, to roll all of that back and figure it out. It's not worth the time or money at the end of the day, it doesn't meet your fancy efficiency and effectiveness chart. Yeah, I'll You'll post a link to that in the show notes. notes. Yeah, yeah, correct. It's, so it's the, super, the automation, the automation work, uh, flow chart that shows you how much time you can spend automating a task based on how long it takes to do it and how frequently you have to do it. Correct. And and Chad, funny story on this is that we would I would say to Chad when we used to work together in Hudson Oaks, I'd be like, hey you know, we really need to automate this process. And he would like go to this chart and he would point out to me that it was not efficient to automate this process. It was super nerdy. Um, but anyways, ultimately though, how are we going to audit this process? Is the comptroller really going to go in there and ask Domino's, I need to know every location that you delivered pizza at and what taxing jurisdiction that location is in? That That's, that's the wholesale change that this makes. And I just... I do not believe, and I can give a little bit of confirmation of this here in a second. I do not believe that the comptroller's office wants this change. Do tell. Yeah. So, I mean, to get prepared for this, I started making phone calls and asking questions. And, you know, first answer that I got was, is that, you know, 4072, it's going to go through the house. It does not have a Senate sponsor on it. I think that's important to note uh, because when things don't have a companion bill, it means they're not going through the process at the same time. Um, and in the Texas legislature, if, if you have a house bill and a Senate bill and they are exact, uh, carbon copies of each other, then that's your companion bill. And you can run them both through the process at the same time. And when they both get passed on that same track, you're good. If you don't, you start in the house, you go to house committee, you get calendared, you then get on the floor, you then get voted on, then you go to the Senate. And the problem is, is if you don't have any Senate companion bill, or you don't have a sponsor in the Senate, it will end up getting picked up in the Senate, usually by a committee member that uh, that, that gets assigned to, uh, which in this case, it'll probably be the finance committee. It, 
it will get assigned to that finance committee. Somebody in the finance committee will pick it up as a bill, but they don't have ownership of it, right? And you know, regardless of the breakfasts that the Senate and the House have together every week, they don't necessarily get along or communicate all that well. And so the reality is this bill could get, um, it, it could get murdered in the Senate basically through the, the uh, amendment process. There's just so much difficulty here. There's so many different parties that are going to be impacted and senators don't represent uh, smaller areas. They represent larger areas. And generally they may have a constituent that could be impacted by this, where some of the folks in the house, uh, if you parse all the votes, it could pass. So ultimately what I'm trying to say is, is that it's going to go to the Senate. So then my question was, well, I wonder, is the cop shore trying to clean up the process? I mean, are they just going to wholesale try to clean this up? And in Texas, it's important to note, the comptroller cannot take any political opinion on a bill. The office has no policy direction at all. They just tell you, is it going to be hard or is it not going to be hard? What does it look like? And, and, and what I got out of the comptroller's office is, this could be a nightmare. This is such a wholesale change. It's such a dark hole that it could, it could really be a problem. We don't know how it's going to impact anybody. And we're not going to be able to express to people how it's going to impact everybody. So it's basically just going to create a, uh, a scare across all of the local governments where they're not going to know what is going to be the impact to my sales tax dollar. And you and I both know, Chad, what that does is, is if it, say a city brings in $100 million of sales tax and they analyze their, their top taxpayers, they're going to ask us for a worst case scenario analysis. We're going to give them that worst case scenario analysis. It's always the worst case scenario let's say it's $25 million, they're going to cut their budget in year one by $25 million. That's how cities operate. And yes, they may end up netting out a loss of say 10 million when they figure out what their new revenue is going to be. But nobody in the first year is going to care about new revenue. They're only going to care about how the new law impacts them uh, in, in the loss. And so I, I just think there's a level of uncertainty there. What I'm hearing out of the comptroller's office is it's way too much uncertainty. We can't just pass a bill and change the way we've been doing business for as long as we've been doing business in you know one snap of a finger. And it, it's concerning to them. Uh, that was the response I got. The bill is extremely concerning that it would create wholesale change within the system and it would it would have a bunch of uncertainty inserted into it. Um, and it's it could be a, a dark black hole of uncertainty. That's that was the comment that I got. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree a hundred percent. It's kind of funny to hear that coming from the comptroller, given the rules that they were trying to pass last year. But well, not only that, but they've said that those rules are going to be implemented on October first. The comptroller's right? so rules. The comptroller's rules. The, the comptroller's, comptroller's rules, rules have their own uncertainty. They, they have their own uncertainty. uncertainty about them. Yes, they have their own uncertainty. Uh, I would say, though, not near as uncertain as this House Bill forty seventy two. House Bill forty seventy two has a lot more uncertainty in it than the comptroller's rule changes do. The comptroller's rule changes will impact a specific subset of cities that did agreements and they're trying to change that and how that operates. It doesn't necessarily have wholesale impact across every city in the entire state. House Bill 4072 will change every city's tax allocation, period. No ands, or buts. So I do want to mention though, the other comment that they made was, we're not a policymaking body, so therefore we're going to leave the policy decisions up to the House and Senate. <laughs> so it's going to break the three-legged school. We know it's going to break the administrative side. And so, but at the same time, we don't set policy. We just tell you what the possible impact could be. And I don't really understand why Morgan Meyer is pushing the bill as hard as he is. Um, to me, the big question is, you have this huge change. Right now it is, we are recording on April 9th, 2021. This is supposed to go into effect October 1st, 2021. Yep. And even the comptroller's rules were supposed to go into effect like three months after they proposed them. They're supposed to go into effect April 1st last year. And, and I, I want to be correct. I want to be clear. We were the guys in COVID who said, don't get crazy. Don't lay people off. Hold off. We, we think this is not going to be as bad financially on sales tax as you do. And, and that ended up being the case. I, I'm not speaking for you on this one, but I'm going to be the guy here. This will cause significant tightening of the belts of cities throughout the state of Texas. Oh yeah. So there will be, yeah. there will be job losses. I'm yeah, just telling you this. That out loud. Yeah. This will be, uh, this will be on par in terms of disruption 
with saying that CO debt can no longer be supported by uh, interest in sinking property tax rates, that it has to be supported by operations. Like that, this is the same level of disruption for cities because no one is going to know what to do. Do I, do I cut my sales tax budget by a third? I mean, do I just have to look at all of the businesses who are likely to be impacted somehow and just remove all of their revenue from my projections? Because I mean, you don't, unless you have a really strong fund balance, and I don't think that a lot of people want to use their fund balance uh, in order to manage the transition because of a law change. Correct. Right. You want to use your fund balance because of something that you can't expect and don't really have control over. Like, I don't it's think a that, one, it's a one-time event. You don't use it for a structural long-term change. Yeah. And it, maybe you can use it to some degree to like ease into this, but I think that most, I mean, a, a change that's this sweeping, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to have it go into effect four or five months later. I, I want to I want to be very clear. In my opinion, I believe that there is some sensibility still in the Texas legislature and that this bill will not pass. It may get through the House, but I think when it gets to the Senate, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a rough road in the Senate. And I don't know. It's not going to be an emergency legislative item. I don't know if it's going to have enough time to get through all the processes over at the Senate. So I, I think, you know, the hope is, is that maybe it just times out or it gets amended to death uh, over in the Senate. But the reality is, is that this is a really, really big change. Is, is this a power play between the legislature and the comptroller? I'm just going to be pretty honest on this. I think this is Dustin Burroughs. If you go back and you listen to the tapes, right, on – um, that occurred and, and the conversation, you know, we, we talked about this. Was he on those What's, tapes? Yeah, he was on those tapes. Ah, uh, okay. What scares me You're talking the about most, the, the Bonin tapes. We, the Bonin that was tapes. like our second episode. We talked about that. Correct. What scares me the most about the Bonin tapes is not Bonin talking politics and doing standard political conversation that ticked them, ticked everybody off and got Bonin fired as the speaker. What, what ticked me off about it was the conversations about them trying to get rid of sales tax and local governments. And I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, Dustin Burroughs, his right-hand man is signed onto this bill. Okay. So here's a question. This is probably more rhetorical. So if you don't have an answer, that's fine. But how are you going to get rid of sales tax for local governments while you're also trying to restrict the amount of property tax that they can generate? Like, how are they going to fund themselves? Uh, how many police officers are going to lose their jobs when CCPD funds get hit by this. I mean, well, that's, then, well then guess what happens? Cause then you're defunding the police. Yeah, correct. I mean, this, <laughs> and, this then, is, the state's going to take over your police department. Let's say it like it is. This is probably the largest defunding the police bill that we'll see in the state of Texas. Oh, wow. Maybe. That is some serious political messaging right there. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I, I think, um, I think it is important okay, to understand it, that in large it, cities, this it, is going to impact in Fort Worth, Texas. This is going to impact people's jobs. If anyone is listening, Patrick just gave you so much value in terms of political consulting. That's if correct. you just call this the defund the police sales tax change, you we can kill this pretty quickly. That's I mean, <laughs> but that's the reality of it is. I mean, it is in larger cities, you know, CCPDs are are more popular in the larger jurisdictions than they are in smaller jurisdictions. And the larger jurisdictions are going to be the ones that get hit harder by this, which is probably why the bill is being written in the first place. But most of the funding in sales tax, a lot of that funding comes through CCPDs and it's going to impact jobs. And, and you and I have said for years, and, and I know you in Fort Worth, your time there, like, why do we have positions funded within CCPD, right? Just from a mindset of how we budget, how we don't budget. But the reality is everybody does it. And well, the reason going- that's a question is because the CCPD is up for five-year renewals. That's correct. Right. So every yes. five years, there's a possibility that the voters could vote it down. And then you have to take whatever amount of money that you have in that CCPD and either get rid of it or shift correct. it to operations. Right. So yeah. that's that's why the question of funding positions in a CCPD is raised. And at least when I was in Fort Worth, this was over a decade ago, so uh, they may be handling it differently. As soon as the election took place and passed, a bunch of positions would shift over there. And then about uh-huh. two years before the next election, they would start to shift everything back to the general fund. So well, I mean, you had to, right? Because the danger, you didn't want to have to lay off police officers. But the reality is, yes, Chad, you said it. 
that's the argument, folks. Go look at it from a public safety standpoint. It's going to directly impact public safety across the state. Yeah. So, so while I think that the, uh, the messaging that you have provided is probably effective, I can't say the same about my support for it generally. <laughs> so I'm not, uh, I, I'm not the biggest fan of using public safety as a cudgel in these, these arguments. But <laughs> hey, this is Chad. I'm jumping in with a quick interjection on something that we forgot to talk about before we change subjects. And that has to do with third-party gig delivery services. So we talked a lot about pizza delivery, like Domino's and Pizza Hut. And those are first-party deliveries where the, the item is actually being delivered from the, from the store to a different location. So sales tax will be collected at the residence or the business, wherever that food is delivered. But third-party, like Uber Eats gig-style delivery, it actually functions a little bit differently. Because the Uber Eats driver is purchasing the item from the restaurant directly and then delivering it to you. So the sales tax would actually be collected at the restaurant. Now, the point of this is not to say that that's wrong or bad, just that even though this bill would clean up certain questions about where sales tax is delivered, it's still not going to be fully clear-cut uh, there's always going to be some edge cases. I mean, that's just one edge case that we wanted to talk about, didn't get a chance to. So I wanted to throw it in here uh, before we move on. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Okay, so uh, it's Friday morning. We both got stuff to do, but baseball is back. Yes, it is. So I asked you a couple of days ago for your top baseball movies of all time. Uh huh. And I've got, I've got, I got thoughts. So here's my order, top three to five-ish, six-ish, somewhere around there. Sandlot, 100%, number one, best baseball movie that's there. The reason I believe it's one of the greatest baseball movies of all time is because it just, it 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 allows young kids to fall in love with baseball. I, I love the Sandlot. The Natural, which Chad had never seen. It's a Robert Redford classic. I'm sure he's got comments. Moneyball's number three, Okay. For the love of the game, which I don't think you've seen for the love of the game. Okay. Major League, Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, the Bad News Bears. That's my order. Okay. So let me just give mine real quick and then okay. and then we'll go to some fisticuffs. The Moneyball, far and away, the best baseball movie ever made. Major League, and then a tie between Sandlot and Field of Dreams. Okay. And the rest of them, I guess I put bad news bears on there, but whatever. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I appreciate your Sandlot choice and I appreciate the reasonings behind it. Mm -hmm. But to me, Sandlot is a coming of age movie that happens to be about baseball. It's not a pure baseball movie. Now, truthfully, most of these are not pure baseball movies because they all, they all, they all have some kind of larger story that they're telling that just happens to be about like a baseball player or something like that. Correct. But Sandlot does heavily feature baseball. And I do appreciate the nostalgia for childhood and, and for learning this great game, which by the way, can we, we both agree baseball is the best game that's ever been invented. Correct. It's the greatest sport on, okay. on the planet. Okay. Yeah. So it's also, wait, it's also the hardest sport to play on the planet. You can be a great baseball player, but you're never constantly great. Unless you're Ted Williams. Well, I mean, even, <laughs> hey, even, for, even for some of the best, like you, you are always going to have a slump. You always have to work at it mechanically. Like your body just doesn't remember mechanics all the time. Right. So you, you constantly have to work at that. It's just a, overall, it's a fantastic sport and it's a grueling sport from a standpoint of playing the season. It is. I think that it's too long. I think it should be like 120 games. I uh, totally disagree. But the thing about the thing that's great about baseball is that because it's so long, there's so many games, there's so many at bats, there's so many pitches. You really get to the sort of the law of averages. It's one reason I wasn't I wasn't very interested in baseball last year. It's because with only a 60 game season, you didn't have enough data points to really know like what each yeah. team was, except for the Rangers because they were terrible last year. Terrible but, this year too. So Sandlot is in my top three. It's a good movie, but to me, it's more of a coming of age movie about these kids 
in this specific time going through these specific issues and baseball is just the backdrop. Okay. Whereas Moneyball is a pure baseball movie. It is almost exclusively about baseball. And even the character development backstories are also about baseball. They're not about, you know, dealing with a stepfather or, uh, or like a love interest or like the fact that my dad died when I was young and, everyone wants to kill me, even though I'm really good at baseball, like these just absurd storylines, like in the natural Moneyball is not only purely about baseball, the backstories are about baseball, but it also manages to cover not only this, this vast period of change in baseball, but it also honors the legacy and the history that came before that period of change. It's it, it look the reason you like Moneyball is because it's all analytical, like it's all about how baseball is a game of numbers. But no one and ever treated it like that. No, you, you're correct. People it treated was, it as they you know using the eye test and uh, he has a uh, he has an ugly girlfriend so he's you know he's going to be really good at third base you know like just yeah, and, and baseball it's called things. he in in baseball it's called he has the five tools the five tools right yeah the five tools. So, and, and by the way, it's still like that today. Mm-hmm. We, we see it all the time. We'll, we'll, we'll play in a tournament. My, my son is a competitive baseball player. We'll play in a tournament and I'll hear all the time. Well, that kid looks like he has the tools. And then when you look at his stats, he, you know, he hits like 150. So, I mean, it, it, you know, they're kids. I'm trying to be careful with that. But the reality is, is that still today, people don't look at the numbers. They look at how they look as a ball player. Yeah. And the, the so. so, yeah, like I, I will fully admit that, that, I'm a big fan of Moneyball, not just the movie, but also the idea. And one thing that I love about Moneyball is that when no one was doing it, it was super effective in its initial incarnation. Mm. But today, Moneyball does not mean what it meant in the early 2000s, right? Because everyone else is doing it. You have to find other inefficiencies and other areas uh, to exploit. But the whole point of Moneyball was, I you know I have basically no budget for players. I can't compete with the Yankees. I can't compete with all these other people who can spend as much money as they want. So where can I find those inefficiencies in this market for players to get the results that I need? And they start I, I looking look- at, at at different types of statistics that that uh, can get you at the end of the day what you need is runs, right? You need to get people on base mm-hmm. and then score runs they don't always have to be from people who you know, you don't always have to pay for a three fifty batting average and in 40, 50 home runs a year, right? You can get the same impact with people who walk a hundred times a year. Yeah. And, and to be fair, Billy Bean is still doing this successfully. I mean, um, you know, the A's won uh, the L O the AOS last year um, and, and had a pretty successful run, but the, the reality of it is, and they did it with pretty low payroll, there, yes, you are right. There are a lot of teams that are still doing this, but there are still teams that are at the top of the heap of this that are able to play this game. Uh, and it's funny, bec- mainly because the Red Sox and the Yankees, although they have analytics departments, they still don't always listen to those analytics departments, mm-hmm. right? They still, um, yeah, they still go get these major big big time ball players that look the part, yet don't perform when they need to perform at the end of the day, whereas uh, the Astros and the A's and the Cardinals um, and uh, some of these other organizations that really are truly a hundred percent analytical organizations, they don't, they don't really allow anything to happen outside of that. I mean, if you, if you watch the Astros play baseball, they are shifting on every single player to the analytical position that they need to be in based on getting that out. And, and they're constantly running so much so that teams have literally tried to hack and have gotten caught hacking the the Astros analytical system to try to figure out what algorithms they're using, right? Uh, that's Moneyball, and it's constantly changing. Uh, yeah, but I would still if, say if everyone starts sh- game. if everyone starts shifting on you, you're going to start learning how to pull it to the gap, right? Like when everyone starts shifting, so traditional Moneyball bunting was a terrible idea, mm-hmm. right? You don't like outs are your premium. That's your currency. Correct. You cannot get outs. So you get a runner on and, first, and you don't steal bases. In the yes. original Moneyball, you don't yes. steal. So you and get a run, do. You get a runner on first base, 
Mm-hmm. And traditional baseball is you advance them, you you bunt Correct. them over, right? You play small ball. You try to get someone into scoring position because then all you need is a hit and they're going to score a run. But traditional money ball, like money ball 1.0 said that out is way more valuable than getting the guy to second base. Because having a guy at second base with one out, you have a less lower chance of scoring than you do at first base with no outs, right? So Correct. you don't, you don't bunt. You don't steal because those are low uh, probability options. But those statistics have changed now. So yeah, that's because why we steal. Because if everyone because has shifted, then your third baseline is open. Then you bunt, yes. right? That's so yeah, yeah. Like that's why I'm saying so that you put a guy at second. You actually steal the base because of the shift now. So yes. originally in Moneyball we didn't have the shift. Now we have the shift. So the statistics have changed. Where if you get a guy on first base with one out, you steal him to second because he's more likely to score on a stolen base than he is sitting at first with one out now because of the shift. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So it's so funny because for like 130 years, baseball really didn't like, eh, maybe say yeah, since the live ball era, baseball didn't change a ton. Uh, you had, I mean, you had the steroid, you know, period where like the power hitting runs, became yeah. just a ridiculous thing, but the way that we played baseball largely didn't change that much. And then in the past 20 years, it's just been a constant evolution. So it, I find it fascinating, but the main point of this is that the natural, <laughs> your number two movie mm-hmm. is awful. It is so bad. Spoiler alert for, for no one, for people who haven't watched it. First of all, don't watch it. Second of all, there are so many absurd storylines that make no sense. Like why did Robert Redford get shot? Because he was a threat. He was a threat to rising up in baseball. Who, That's why it was shot. Like there can there can be no stars in baseball except for the people that are current. Like there have always been new stars in baseball. He got shot. Was there something was, about Robert Redford that was just so amazing that he could not be allowed to play? Yeah, he had a bat with a with a lightning bolt on it. Yeah. yeah. So hold on, timeout. Everybody, Chad's email then is later. He got hold on, poisoned. hold on, hold on. Yeah, that's correct. Hold on, everybody. Chad's email is chad at zachtax.com. What he has just said for true baseball fans. I am a true baseball fan. Thank you very much. I just want you to know, I I texted out to five friends and asked for their top three baseball movies. These guys played pro ball, uh, college ball, uh, you know, all the above. And everybody's list came back with the natural on it. So I'm giving out Chad's email so that you can explain to him how great a movie this is. And the reality is, Chad, it, it is the nostalgia of old baseball and the fight for the love of a game, the fight that Robert Redford has to play the game he loves, right? With everything against him, getting shot, getting poisoned, the owner of the team not wanting him to perform, everything's against him. His back's against the wall. At the end of the day, he comes out there with, his, with, with that swing, and he, he wins it. Yeah, but the problem is that all of, that, all of those obstacles are so absurd that it makes the movie unwatchable. Yeah, but I mean, like, what, like why doesn't he get movies, kidnapped? Like Doc Brown, why doesn't he get kidnapped by Libyan terrorists? Well, for or stealing like one of my favorite movies them? as a kid. One of my favorite movies as a kid was Iron Eagle. Did you ever see Iron Eagle? Yes, it's awful. But that's, it's that's like, like intended, the twelve or thirteen year old who's who's flying an F fifteen, right? But that's intended to be a ridiculous, just fun movie, like Red Dawn. Uh, okay. Right. Like this is supposed to be a serious baseball movie and everything that happens is so contrived and ridiculous. I think for the time that the movie was made, which was technically 1984, right? Mm -hmm. For the time that the movie was made, this was a very, uh, this was the theme of the time. Okay. Okay. It's a great baseball movie. People, please don't allow uh, Chad to turn you off from the natural. If you're a true baseball fan, you've probably got the natural in your top five, at least. That's right. I called you not a true baseball fan for not liking the natural. <laughs> okay, so let, be let me, it. Your, your third one was either Sandlot or Field of Dreams. Yes. Okay. I love Sandlot. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I have watched Sandlot since I was like eight years old. Uh, it's a great movie. There's so many. Sandlot, Sandlot 2 is terrible, by the way. Don't yeah, watch I've it. never watched I, I I don't tend to watch those sequels because you know they're going to be awful. Correct. But Sandlot is a great movie. Uh, so many quotables. 
uh, and and scenes that are are memorable. It's it's a very rewatchable movie. But when I'm comparing Sandlot to Moneyball, the the difference to me is that Sandlot is to me more of a coming of age movie. Okay. And Bad News Bears, the original, correct? Yes. Okay. Just make sure <laughs> remakes. Not one of these remakes are terrible. Uh, and by the way, if you're going to watch Bad News Bears and you have a younger child, just realize that <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it would have been rated R in in today's world. Yeah. Possibly. Well, it definitely so. because because uh, Kelly smokes, right? Yeah, Kelly smokes. So it's definitely the, that like that is a an correct. automatic rated R. So yeah, and uh, extremely just a, a great movie, by the way. Uh, Bad News Bears. So all that being said, it's baseball I mean, season, guys. Correct. It's baseball season. Go out there, love it. The Rangers are terrible. We're three. Do they and have three. anybody on their roster? Do you have anybody? Do we know who's on their roster? Uh, like, Joey, any- Joey Gallo. Joey Gallo. Okay, uh, who else they got? Uh, Connor Falafa, still there. Those are pretty oh. much the only two. There's a guy, is his name Nate Lowe? This may get cut. When are they going to fire John? He just got promoted. I don't understand it. So the news came out that John Daniels was no longer the GM. And I like ran around my house cheering. I was so happy. Uh, and then I found out that he actually got promoted and he's now over the GM. <laughs> so I had to quickly so, like tamp- temper my, uh, my expectations. So full disclosure, Chad and I had a discussion a couple of months ago. We've probably had a discussion three or four times about at some point we want to get season tickets. I'm not a Rangers fan. I'm an Astros fan. But at some point we want to get season tickets to the Rangers because the stadium's close and uh, we, we want to, you know, it, it'd be fun to have that. But they're so terrible right now. Like, I, I don't like, who do you go cheer for? We're three and the three. other team. Nate Lowe has like 20 RBI. Oh, yeah, who question. They, who have they played? Question. RBI runs batted in. Mm-hmm. If you were to say that Jose Altuve hit went three for three and had three RBI, is it RBI or RBIs? Ooh, because it would be runs batted in or runs batted ends. Kind of like Illinois. I had to put that in there. <laughs> so there uh, is anyways, an S at the end of Illinois. There is an S at the end of Illinois. Uh, you know? This is one of my I literally can't even. RBI. Three RBI. Yeah, this is one of my I literally can't evens is the pluralizing of RBI. Yeah. I, I will tell you RBIs, I just did it right there, are not a statistic to which I always look at the player to see whether they are a great it's heavily dependent on where they are in the order that's correct and and like Altuve hits first a lot of times he's not going to have that many rbi yeah and most of his rbis are are solo home runs runs. yeah yeah correct so uh, i will tell you one of the most controversial decisions that the astros made this year is they did not really negotiate with springer uh and that looks like a good decision so far in Toronto, I think he's been injured. He's not playing well. Um, I, I think the Astros saw something there analytically mm-hmm. to not do that because I think on on the five tool eye test, Springer's a great ball player, and so far they have not renegotiated with Correa. Um, I like him. So I, I like Correa. I mean, Correa is one of the best shortstops in the game. The problem with Correa is he's re, he's been injury prone, right? Yeah. So he's had he's played for us for like four years, and in those four years, he's missed like half the season in two of those seasons. So, uh, but he's a great postseason player, yeah. really good postseason player. But we have uh, Alvarez back, and uh, Alvarez is incredible. Like it, his statistics, I'm going to pull this up real quick because okay. you'll appreciate these numbers. While you do that, I'll say one of the best moves that John Daniels made as GM was trading Ian Kinsler, which was very controversial at the time. He was our second baseman. Um, he's our leadoff hitter. And it was very controversial. But for me, I always dreaded Ian Kinsler going up to bat to open up a game and swinging at the first pitch and popping it up. So that's another way that Moneyball has changed the game is the pitch counts are a lot higher, yeah. like per at bat, which means that you get you get out of your starting rotation a lot quicker. So you need a you need a better bullpen, deeper bullpen. So, uh, Jordan Alvarez is the DH for the Houston Astros. He was hurt all last COVID season, right? He was he was out with like a I can't remember if it was like a hip or something. Anyways, he was rookie of the year in his first year. Okay, uh, debuted June 9th, two thousand nineteen. 
uh, at the age of 21. He's currently 23 years old. His career hitting batting average right now, 313. He's had 351 at-bats, 110 of those for hits. Of the 110 at-bats, 60 have been for extra bases. 30 have been home runs. Dude, these are like incredible like Hall Trout of Fame numbers. numbers. I, I, it's better than Mike Trout, I'll be honest with you, right now. I mean, if he can keep this up, I mean, he he will be one of the greatest hitters of all time. That's a five-tool player. <laughs> he's not a five-tool player. If you've ever seen him run or know, play slow, defense, yeah. he's really slow. But literally, I mean, he just, he is, if you just break down his at-bats, they are incredible. His mind is incredible. Uh, he's from Cuba uh, and just a, a great young player, just incredible talent. Uh, and if you are not watching Jordan Alvarez, you need to be watching him now. Well, on that note, let's wrap it up. Let's, let's wrap it up. Thank Nothing you all for baseball. listening. Uh, talk about sales tax. Uh, if you have any uh, concerns or questions, you can always reach out to us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, via email um, about what is it? HB 4720. Correct. No, it'll be in the sh- it'll be in the show notes. Forty seventy two, HB forty seventy two, or as Patrick calls it, the defund the police act. That's correct. <laughs> so, uh, and if you have any comments about the natural, you can send it to me, but it's not going to change my mind. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. <laughs> did uh, did Jessica watch the natural? No. All right, we'll end on that. Anyways, great to see you, Chad. Thanks for hanging with All me. All right, see you.